Following his dictation of these letters that Jesus wanted to be sent to the seven churches located in Asia Minor, the record of which we have recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Revelation 4 opens with John, who's been given an instruction by Jesus to write the things that he had seen, which was the record of the glorified, resurrected Jesus presented for us in chapter 1, to write the things which are, which were these seven letters written to the church age, before then recording the things which will take place after this. This John, given these instructions, the beginning of chapter 4, he is immediately raptured into the future, finding himself specifically in the throne room of heaven. After taking some time to describe for us, with no doubt the obvious limitation of human vocabulary, both the scene and activity happening around the throne room of God, which includes this depiction of these four magnificent kind of trippy angels known as cherubim, as well as these 24 elders on their thrones representing the saints of God, John's attention after all of this hones in onto a specific item. A scroll catches his attention. Not just any scroll. It was a scroll sealed with seven seals held in the right hand of God. Getting a head start, Revelation 5, beginning with verse 1. John says that I saw in the right hand of him, again, God the Father, who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Uh, that phrase, to look at it, doesn't mean you couldn't peer at it. Obviously, John is seeing it. In the Greek, it means to actually open it and, and read the, the contents. Because of this, John says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. In our last study, I noted that there were three clues from John's description here that help us understand the contents and therefore the importance of this scroll. The first clue, in a bit of a recap, is found in the reality that this scroll is in the right hand of God. It's in his possession, and more specifically, it's been sealed with seven seals. Aside from the fact that God has this scroll in his hand, he hasn't lost it. It's in his possession. This detail that it's been sealed, it tells us that the specific directives within this legal document were designed to be set into motion but deliberately held back until an appropriate time and place that God determined. So it's in God's hand. No doubt God has been in control of sealing it. There are directives, but God is holding those things off. Again, why it's sealed up. Secondly, this description that the scroll was written on the inside and on the, on the back or the outside, it's also informative. It helps us understand what the scroll is about. When the contents of a scroll were reserved for a particular person that needed to fit a certain set of criteria, on the outside of the scroll, it was commonplace for you to find the list of qualifications. As such, we can deduce that not just anyone could loose these seals and execute the document. Like That idea is further validated by the reality that no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll. So there's something about this scroll setting the criteria, setting the qualifications, where everyone looking at it realizes, I can't open it. Finally, the biggest clue centers on this detail that the scroll was bound, not with one seal, but specifically with seven seals. When the contents of a scroll were reserved for a particular person, it was a normal practice, again, Roman culture, for a string to be tied around the document, knotted up, wax, then put on the knot, and the sender's signet, his ring, pressed into the wax, sealing up the scroll. That way, upon the scroll's arrival, an unbroken seal guaranteed that the contents hadn't been disturbed, hadn't been read, kind of for your eyes only. 
So one seal would have accomplished that purpose, but the existence of seven seals, it, it tells us that this scroll was of such importance that one signet wouldn't do. It wasn't enough. This document had to be sealed with the signets of seven individual eyewitnesses. Again, seven in, in biblical numerology, meaning completion. What makes that fascinating, the existence of these seven seals, is that in Roman times, there was only one type of official document that necessitated such a unique practice. Only one. A last will and testament. While we can see, in the course of human affairs, how so much of God's will has been accomplished, we do know that there is a final act to God's will that has yet to be initiated. A portion of biblical prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Things dealing with, with Israel, God's judgment of the world, the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. These things haven't happened yet. We refer to these things as end times affairs, or the tribulational period, or Daniel's 70th week, or, or even Jacob's time of trouble. See, when John sees this scroll, bound with seven seals. I believe he knows, he understands, and his audience in the first century, that contained in this document was the final act of God's will, his testament for the earth. Up until this future moment in time, God has kept these events from taking place. He's bound them up. He sealed them in the scroll. He set them aside. This is still yet future. John, though, he's been carried into this future throne room of heaven. And he's been taken there for a reason. To witness the moment when this final act of God's will for earth was ready to be initiated. As John stands here, seeing the scroll, understanding its implications, the only thing needed for God's will on earth to, to come to its completion was for someone to be found worthy to come and set it all into motion. Understandably, because no one was initially found worthy, and therefore the consummation of God's will for earth remained on pause, John is gripped with emotion. He's in heaven, witnessing glory, and he begins to weep. You see, John knows, and what would bring up such an affair is that this contents of the scroll, if they're not enacted, if they remain sealed up, John knows there could be no resolution to world affairs. He knows that without the seals being loosed, without the contents being carried forth, the world, his world and, and ours, would remain forever trapped. And its continual cycle of pain and depression and despair and tumult. You know, when you look around at the world, two things should be jump out at you. Really, two things should be really obvious. One, this world is totally messed up. I mean, ha have you figured that one out? Have you looked around, turned on the news, watched for a few minutes? Like, we have big problems when it comes to this earth. Uh, two, not only is the world messed up, but it's also obvious that there's not a single person who has any clue how to fix it. Like, not to deviate too far from the point, but I think the fundamental problem is actually believing a fallen world is fixable. You know, even with our modern achievements, our technological uh, advancements, our intellectual prowess, our great scientific understanding as to the way the world works, no governmental system ever devised on any point of the spectrum by sinful man, has come close ever to effectively addressing humanity's core problems, yet alone providing any type of lasting remedy. Communism, socialism, capitalism, democracy, it's all failed to bring about a remedy. You know, the sad truth, and we should be honest about this as Christians, that you look around at our world today, and despite all of our progress, you know, we're still grappling with what? With what? What issues? Racism, 
social equalities, economic injustices, corporate greed, class warfare, political corruption, religious intolerance, human trafficking, slavery still a thing, disease, sectarian violence, ethnic cleansing, war. The list could go on and on and on. All of our progress, we're still dealing with the same issues we did back in the 1500s. There's no solution on this earth. You see, from John's perspective, the reason he weeps in heaven is he's aware of what so many of us have forgotten. There is not a mortal man, not a man on earth, under the earth, above the earth. There is not a mortal man that can fix this broken world. Today, the scroll, which will bring about a finality to it all, still remains sealed up in the hand of God. Right now, there is a scroll and the right hand of the Father and the throne room of heaven sealed with these seven seals we're talking about right now. And yet, though John is weeping in the moment, gripped by the implications of no one being found worthy, he is about to record for us a future day when the one who was worthy finally decides enough is enough and the time has come to initiate God's final will for this earth. John is about to record something you and I will see one day. Verse 5. So he's weeping. But, this is a good, this is a good but, one of the elders, so, so one of these 24, said to me, do not weep. Now in the Greek, it's stronger than that. Kind of like, stop it. Stop it, John. Stop it. Behold, or consider, consider this. You're missing something, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And note, that's in past tense. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. John says, I looked and behold. And the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he, again speaking of the Lamb, came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John is weeping because he assumes no one was worthy to initiate God's ultimate will for this earth. And yet, one of these elders comes over, consoles John, and gives him some great news, right? John, there is someone worthy. Don't worry about it. This elder then refers to Jesus using two Old Testament references, kind of iconic references, the first of which is he refers to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This speaks to a a prophecy given by Jacob to one of his sons, Judah. The idea of Jesus being presented here described as a lion spoke of his strength. There is one who's strong, who has a vigilance, a heroic spirit, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is the other reference, which spoke to Jesus' kingly heritage. This elder also tells Jesus, tells John that Jesus has prevailed to open and loose. Again, has prevailed. Interesting phrase. Again, past tense. It speaks not of a current work of Jesus, but a, a previous one. A past work. Like the idea being articulated is that Jesus' worthiness, like what makes him worthy, was not just inherent, but had been achieved. Jesus had done something to prevail. I hope you know that Jesus is worthy, not only because he's God, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's worthy because Jesus has earned his worth through his work on the cross. He's proven himself worthy. You know, in the end, the only one worthy to carry forth God's final plan for this world will be Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. It's at this point, John, I could see him wiping away his tears, right? He says that he looks up and he beholds what had to have been a most amazing sight, right? 
in the midst of the throne, John says there stood a lamb. Now, <laughs> please keep in mind, John didn't see an actual lamb. Instead, he's referring to Jesus using a term that oozes Old Testament and New Testament imagery. In fact, it's worth pointing out that an astounding 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus will be referred to as the Lamb. There's a, tr a, a, a trick when it comes to understanding certain things in, in the Bible. Uh, it's called the law of first mention. It's handy, actually. In fact, it's handy uh, in a situation like this. Law of first mention implies that the first time something's brought up in the Bible kind of sets a precedent by which you can understand that thing throughout the rest of Scripture. It's kind of a, a, a trick when it comes to bibliology. Now, the first mention, I bring it up, the first mention that we have of a lamb in the Bible, do you know where it is? It's actually in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Let me read for you two verses. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This is the, the story where Abraham finally has his son of promise and is instructed by God to take and offer his son. So they're working their way up the, the mountain, and, and, and Isaac's starting to put some pieces together. Wait a second. Like, we got the fire, we got the wood, we're going to go make an offering, where's the lamb? We're told that Abraham replies, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, one of the things that makes that a little convoluted, and, and if you look at it in the, the New King James, that word for is actually an italicized. It means it's not actually there. It's added by the translators to try to give clarity. I think it does the opposite. It's more confusing. Like in the original language, this is actually Abraham's reply. So Isaac's like, where's the lamb? What Abraham actually says, more accurately translated, is God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, you move into the New Testament. And again, using this law of first mention. Do you know the, the first time you find lamb in the New Testament? Blows your mind. It's not in Matthew, Mark. Or Luke. Like, we have to get to the fourth gospel before we find the word lamb in the New Testament. The first mention of lamb you won't find until John 1, verse 29. John the baptizer, not our author, is down by the Jordan River, setting the stage for the arrival of, of the Messiah, and he sees Jesus coming. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First mention of Lamb in the New Testament. So, so put it together. Isaac asks the question, the question all humanity needs to ask, where is the Lamb? Abraham answers by prophesying, God will provide himself the Lamb. Then 2,500 years later, John the Baptist declares of Jesus, behold, the Lamb. Where's the Lamb? God will provide himself the lamb. Behold the lamb. Now in this future scene of heaven, it should be no surprise that the Apostle John, not introducing any new imagery, building off of imagery already established, he looks and he sees Jesus. The first time he sees Jesus in heaven, what does he say? He sees him as a lamb, as though he had been slain. Now if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God provided Adam and Eve coverings of skin. The precedent was clear that humanity needed an offering in order to satisfy the righteous demands of his sin. Why? Well, God had been clear. The wages of sin is death. In fact, the entire Levitical system was established to then reinforce the idea that atonement, the atonement of sin would require the death of an innocent substitute. And yet the problem always came back, as we're told in Hebrews 10 verse 4, that it was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There could be a covering, temporary, but nothing permanent. Because of our fallenness, there was no sacrifice that any human being could ever offer to make himself right with God. 
in the end, God would have to become human and then provide himself as a sacrificial lamb. Again, this is why John the Baptist refers to Jesus as being what? Not the lamb of man, the lamb of humanity. No, this is the lamb of God. This is God's offering, God's sacrifice. It's God's, God's offering for you and I. Concerning Jesus in this heavenly scene, John says that Jesus looked, notice, not just that he was a lamb, but he was a lamb as though he had been slain. So this is not just any lamb, it's a slaughtered lamb. Like like the idea is that in this future scene in the throne room of heaven, Jesus still bore in his person the marks of sacrifice. The marks of sacrifice as the lamb offered by God to atone for our sins. Yet to this point, we, we do learn a few things in the Gospels of Jesus' physical appearance post-resurrection. So a few, few details between when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Like we know at a minimum of his physical being that Jesus bore in his person the, the scars in his hands and his feet, right? And in fact, beyond that, we also know that Jesus bore a, a wound in his side. Thomas, if you remember, wasn't there for one of Jesus' appearances, said, it's not, it won't be until I put my hands in, his, uh, my hands in, in, the, in the wounds of his hands and his feet or his side, and Jesus appears and he's like, here you go. So we know that there was this. In fact, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus broke bread and they saw his hands, like there was, it, it dawned on them. So he, Jesus bore at least wounds still in resurrected glory of, of the nails in his hands and his feet and the, and the side. Beyond that, it's also interesting, again, when you read the accounts, that the people Jesus was closest to, like take Mary Magdalene as an example. I mean, Mary knew Jesus. They were close. They had spent three years together. She had served the Lord. Jesus rose from the dead, and he's, and he's in the garden, right? The first appearance. And Mary, I'm sure because she's weeping and she's distraught, you know, she's a little distracted, but she didn't initially recognize Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. Like, it's, it's likely, because even the people closest to Jesus had a hard time recognizing him, that aside from just the, the nail wounds and the spear wound, that Jesus probably bore bodily, physically, the effects of a Roman scourging. Like we're told the beard was plucked from his face. Like imagine the scarring that that would leave. Could it be that Jesus still bears in his brow uh, the wounds from, from the crown of thorns? Like is, is, is it, John sees him as a lamb as though he had been slain. Like what does Jesus look like? Could the, the, the crucifixion, I, I'm of the opinion that Jesus probably is very deformed physically. He bears these, these wounds in his, in his appearance. I, it's provocative, I guess, to consider, but it's true nonetheless. You know, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars that Jesus bears in his body as our sacrificial lamb. And think about the implications of that. For all of our eternity, forever and ever and ever, we will have in heaven a visual reminder every single time we look at Jesus. The incredible payment that our sin demanded. We'll be reminded of the judgment that we deserved. But we will also be reminded as to the depths of his love. A love he demonstrated so that we might be saved. For all of eternity. Every time you look at Jesus you'll be reminded of what sin demanded, of what you deserved, but what he did. One scholar to this point, he observed that Jesus' work on the cross will be perpetually fresh and current before the Father. It's sobering, but this is not the only thing that, that John observes of Jesus. He adds, in addition to being a lamb as though he had been slain, he also says that Jesus had 
seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And again, Jesus, John is employing for us biblical imagery to articulate some important points. Like It's, it's not that, that John sees Jesus as a lamb, and not as he just a lamb, but he's a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. That would have been strange, right? right? That being Jesus. Like John is using here language to articulate, to let us know that while Jesus is a lamb, bearing the effects of slaughter, Jesus also, though, wasn't weak. It was like this interesting dichotomy. He's a lamb as though he had been slain, but he's also been referred to as a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so John tells us that he has these, these seven horns, and, and in, in the Bible, horn, it always refers to as power, strength, authority. Seven being completion, complete. The idea is that Jesus, yes, he's a lamb bearing the effects of slaughter, but he is all-powerful. Don't think you can mess with him. And he has these seven eyes. Again, the idea of it's, it's omniscience. He has a total understanding. He knows that he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Yes, he's a lamb, but he's also God. See, Jesus as the lamb is not to be pitied, nor is he to be seen as being weak. He's the lion. Like in his work as the lamb, Jesus has proven himself worthy. He's proven himself worthy to judge a world that had unjustly judged him. Again, he's the lamb that was slain. Like in truth, Jesus physically personified in his very being the lengths to which he'd gone to provide mankind a way out of the coming judgment. Like as the lamb, Jesus was not only worthy to judge the world, but he's also able. Which is why here John sees the lamb stand up in other places, we're told that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The only other mention of Jesus in the heavenly scene is when Stephen was being martyred, stoned to death, and he looked up to heaven, and, and Jesus stood up. He's moved by the afflictions of his servants. But he stands there in the midst of the throne, and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat there. You see, the time had finally come where the final act of God's will for this planet was to commence, and it would be commenced, brought forth, executed by Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy. This plan, by the way, was initiated in the garden. It's now about to come to its completion. It's what the book will, will contain for us. John continues, verse 8. Now when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders Again, we've been introduced to them in the previous chapter. They fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. In the original language, that's translated as electric guitar. And they each have golden bowls full of incense, which then John tells us are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for, now John will say, this is what makes Jesus worthy, you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. I noted in a previous study that such a song could only be sung by Christians, the redeemed. Couldn't be sung of the angelic host. Incredibly, as John sees this scene play out. Again, picture, you're going to see it one day, Right? Jesus, the moment he takes the scroll, right? A moment that has been building for thousands of years that everyone has anticipated. The immediate reaction, John observes, is what? In this throne room, the four living creatures around the throne of God singing holy, 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 boom, they hit their faces. The 24 elders, they hit their faces. There is this instant, immediate acknowledgement of Jesus' worthiness to take the scroll. He is worthy as the lamb. John adds that, that these elders have harps, which is cool. It, it implies that there is musical accompaniment with the song they're about to sing. So there's music in heaven. And we're also told they each possess these golden bowls full of incense, which then he says are the prayers of the saints. 
In Psalms 141, verse 2, King David would sing, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Within the tabernacle, and later the temple, positioned directly outside of the Holy of Holies, was a piece of furniture known as the altar of incense. Every single day, it was the job of the priests to tend to this altar so that this sweet aroma of the smoke of the incense would rise up and waft behind the veil into the Holy Holies the presence of God. That was the intention of the altar of incense. Symbolically, the altar of incense and the aroma represented both our prayers and our worship of God. That's what the smoke and the the aroma represented. Paul would actually describe these things in Philippians 4 verse 18 as being, quote, a sweet-smelling aroma pleasing to God, our prayers and our worship. You realize that? When you're worshiping God here on Sunday morning, singing the songs, It's a sweet-smelling aroma rising before the throne of God. And when you pray, it's a smell that God savors and He enjoys and He loves. I heard it observed, the smoke of the incense, it went where no human was allowed to enter. And right now we're on earth. We're not in the throne room of heaven. But you want to have an effect in heaven? Your songs, your worship, and your prayers do. It blows my mind, right? Like, never forget, your prayers and your worship yield, and the moment it happens, a tangible effect in the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God. This, these bowls, golden bowls, with the, the incense being the prayers of the saints. You know, I hope you know that your prayers, specifically the ones that, that right now remain unanswered, your unanswered prayers, I want you to know there's kind of an implication to this. It, what, what, what's implied is that your unanswered prayers haven't been lost. Like it wasn't as though they get lost in translation or, or somehow they're floating out there in spiritual cyberspace. No, no, no. God has heard your prayers and he's collected your prayers. They're not lost, nor are they ignored. Instead, it would appear from this passage that there are certain prayers that have been collected, stored, saved in these golden bowls awaiting a moment. The moment that Jesus takes the scroll. And think about it. You know, if we pray as Jesus instructed us to, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6 verse 10, then it simply stands to reason that there are some things that must wait. Until the end. Till the kingdom comes to be answered. Concerning these elders, John tells us that they they sang a new song. A a new song relevant to the moment. Like in the Greek, the, the word here, new, it indicates newness regarding quality. As opposed to timing. Like the idea is that something has just happened that necessitates a new song be sung. Like, Like they pull out the hymnal and there's no song in the hymnal that's applicable to the moment. Something new has happened. Something we've anticipated has occurred. A new song is demanded. You know, back in chapter 4, all of heaven praised God the Father as being the creator. But now in the context of Jesus taking the scroll, all of heaven worships Jesus as the redeemer. Uh, Pertaining to the song itself, Uh, David Guzik, one of my favorite Bible scholars, he unpacks the significance of this song so perfectly that instead of just stealing it and not giving him credit, I'm just going to read it for you. He writes this. He says, The song honors the price of redemption, for you are slain. The song honors the worker of redemption. You have redeemed us. The song honors the destination of redemption. You have redeemed us to God. The song honors the payment of redemption by your blood. The song honors the scope of redemption. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The song honors the length of redemption. You have made us kings and priests to our God. The song honors the result 
of redemption, and we shall reign on the earth. Presumably, as the song is being sung by these elders, John adds, look at verse 11. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Basically, it's the largest number you could possibly conceive of in the Greek, multiplied by itself, multiplied by itself. Like You can't count this. This large group, innumerable, began saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's worth noting in chapter 4, we saw the worship of the cherubim around the throne of God prompt the worship of the elders. Now, the same thing is happening in reverse. It's the worship of the elders now prompting the worship of all of heaven. John says, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, the Apostle Paul he makes this observation. He says, For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. Like it seems that in response to Jesus taking the scroll, and now the end, the consummation of it all coming, being initiated. John hears all of creation cry out in anticipation. He says, then the four living creatures said, or, or literally they kept saying over and over and over again, Amen, 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 or that's the truth. And the 24 elders fell down. So they lay down completely prostrate in this position of submission before King Jesus we're told that they worshiped him who lives forever and ever. You know, up until this point in time, John has been describing for us the scene, not of all of heaven, right? But a scene specific to the throne room of heaven. But it would appear in this moment, John becomes aware of much more beyond his line of sight. Again, look at verse 11. He says, I looked, but I heard. So this is not something he can see, but he's aware of it. He can hear it. And then he provides the list of what he's hearing. The voices he heard were that of the angels around the throne, which that's a new description, the four living creatures, which we've already had mentioned, the elders, again, the 24. But John then says the number of them was just too large to possibly number, to count. Now, there are those that will argue that the them is in reference to the number of the angels around the throne. The problem with that interpretation is that in the Greek, them is actually in reference to the totality, not just of the angels, but of the entirety of the list, which includes the elders. It's my belief that John becomes aware of the number of saints in heaven throughout all of the centuries and the ages outside of his line of sight but represented in the throne room by these 24 elders also now worshiping God. This was your moment. This is how you're included. This is you and I in the scene. Chapter 6, verse 1. <laughs> you didn't think we'd get there, I know. Now I saw... When the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As chapter 5 closes, the stage is now set for the consummation of God's plan for the ages. In fact, Revelation 6, all the way through 19, will document for us a series of future events set to occur during a final seven-year period of human history. That according to a vision given to the prophet Daniel, known as the 70 weeks prophecy, will be initiated or will begin with the Antichrist, the son of perdition, signing a false peace accord with Israel. And the seven years will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, while we know the bookends of these seven years, we know how it begins and we know how these seven years end, 
We also know what happens, by the way, in the three and a half year mark. It's what's known as the abomination of desolation. We'll talk about it later. You need to know. You can, you can say for, for certainty how it begins, how it ends, what happens in the middle. But placing all of the events described by John in these 14 chapters into a certain, certain or clean chronology <laughs> can be very difficult. And not just difficult, but in, in actuality, it can become the source of a lot of unnecessary contention. Like, like we're going to leave the substance of Revelation 6 to next, next week. But I want to set the stage for these things by laying out what we can say with, for certain. Right? First, there is without question a chronology, that there is a chronology to the events that John sees plays out in, in the throne room of heaven. So that's the first thing as we work through these chapters. Please know, what John sees in heaven happens in chronology. That's the truth. You can't, you can't avoid it. In chapter 6, John will watch Jesus open six of the seals binding the scroll. Then in chapter 8, as Jesus opens the seventh seal, John will record that there are seven angels who proceed to blow in heaven seven trumpets. So six seals are open. With the seventh, there are then seven trumpet blasts. But then following the, the final trumpet, beginning in chapter 16, John then records seven more angels pouring out the bowls of God's wrath onto the earth. So there is a chronology, there is a sequence, there is an order to what John sees happen in heaven. In fact, after the last bowl in Revelation 19, John witnesses then heaven open and Jesus descend to earth riding a white horse. Like John's sense of chronology is obvious. Especially when you take into account that within these chapters, he will use the phrase, after these things, when articulating his vision over and over and over time. Six times, in fact. After these things. After these things. After, which notes chronology or order. So we know that. What John is seeing happening in, in heaven, there is a chronology to. Secondly, everything that John sees occurring in heaven does initiate some type of reciprocal event on earth. We could say that for certain. Like we'll see that with the opening of each of these seals or the blowing of each trumpet or the pouring out of each bowl, there is some type of cataclysmic judgment, an event taking place on the earth. Now, there are some who try to make the case that the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are in actuality a repeating of the same judgments. Uh, they'll argue that John is actually employing a Hebraic form of storytelling by adding new details to each repetition of the same story. There's a problem with this, though. First, John's audience is not Jewish. <laughs> They're predominantly Gentile, unfamiliar with a Hebraic form of storytelling. Beyond that, there are simply too many unique and contradictory details associated with each judgment for them not to stand on their own. Like, here's just one of, of what will be many examples. In the second and third trumpets, we will see one-third of the seas become blood and one-third of the freshwater turn bitter. Very specific, a third. And yet, if you fast-forward then to the second and third bold judgments, all of the sea turns to blood and all of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. Again, it's too unique and contradictory to not be two different judgments. Thirdly, so again recapping, there's a chronology to what John sees in heaven. With everything John sees in heaven, there is a reciprocal event occurring on earth. Okay, we, we know that. That's a given. No need to debate that. Third, there is no question <laughs> that John's sense of time is much different than ours. And this is where things get a little wonky. Like as illustrated in the first two verses of chapter 6, what we read and why we read them, John, notice, he will watch something happen in heaven, right? But then he'll leave that scene, go to earth, and then just describe the reciprocal event play out. Like, in fact, 
while the entire scene in heaven happens in probably the span of what could have only been about an hour or so, we know that the same time period on earth spans seven years. Again, the way time works here is wonky. You know, in truth, time, generally speaking, is a funky thing. Especially in the context of how time on earth relates to eternity. You know, know, the Bible tells us that God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, which right from the bat tells us that as the Creator, God exists outside of what we call a time-space continuum. Beyond that, we're told that a day to God is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. I mean, beyond that, even the way time works on, on earth is weird. Like, if you're with the love of your life, time flies by, right? But if you're taking a test or you're at work, (laughs) the same amount of time takes forever, right? I won't get into all of, like, the, the actual physics of things, but in space, time functions differently in outer space than it does on earth. So so we know that John's sense of time is different than ours because he's seeing things in heaven, he's going to earth and seeing them play out, and then he's going back to heaven. So there's this, this weird thing that's occurring. In fact, is it possible for a series of chronological events taking place in heaven to play out and maybe even overlap in non-chronological ways on earth? It's hard to say it's, it's, it isn't, right? In fact, I would say that this is probably the easiest way to understand the book. Yes, there is a chronology to John's revelation, but the chronology, think of it as being three-dimensional as opposed to just linear. Lastly, When you read through these chapters, you will notice that John will intentionally take large breaks in the action in order to go back and add additional details or to elaborate on some of the more significant developments. Like, in fact, more than half of these chapters are actually thematic in nature and have nothing to do with the chronology at all. Like, never forget, what is the purpose of the book? The purpose of the book is not to answer all of your questions about the end times. Nor is it to provide a detailed timeline for how all these things are going to play out with you not being here. The purpose of the book is what? To reveal Jesus. To reveal to you new aspects of Jesus Christ that haven't been revealed. Let me add one more thing before we wrap things up this morning. I believe expositors make a huge mistake when they attempt to interpret what it is that John was attempting to describe. Now, now, I understand why this happens. You see, scholars reason that since John lived in the first century and would have no doubt struggled to articulate many of our modern advancements, like how would you describe an Apache helicopter, right? that the fact we live in the 21st century, a different context, gives us an advantage in making sense of these future things John witnesses and describes. I think that's a problem, though. You see, the problem with this approach is that it ends up leading to all kinds of unnecessary rabbit, rabbit holes and in the end abandons a literal reading of the text, which I'm always skeptical of. I'll give you an example. When John references at the end of this chapter the stars of heaven falling to earth, scholars will will theorize and postulate that John is actually describing modern methods of warfare. Now, it's true that using such language is maybe how John would have described scud missiles. But that approach discounts the reality that John may have actually been describing meteors falling out of the sky. 
So there's a good rule of thumb that we'll employ moving forward. When the plain reading of a text makes plain sense, anything else is often nonsense. Now, before we completely turn the page on this incredible scene that John records for us in Revelation 4 and 5, I want, in closing, for us to just get back to the purpose of it all. Jesus, okay? When you consider the heavenly scene that you will one day experience for yourself, never, ever, ever discount the reality that there will be in heaven a man named Jesus sitting on the throne of God, ruling and reigning in power. You know, as much of a mystery as it is that I can't explain, it blows my mind that there was an aspect of the incarnation that was seemingly irreversible. You see, in order to save men, Jesus, the second member of the Holy Trinity, had to forever lay aside an aspect of his divinity to become a man forever. Yes, Jesus was exalted in glory, don't get me wrong. But as we saw, he still bears in his physical frame the marks of suffering that he had to endure on account of our sins. Think about that. For Jesus to be our Savior, for us to have a Savior, Jesus had to do something radical. He had to dawn humanity, flesh and bone, forever, for all time. Now over the coming weeks, we're going to see Jesus judge a rejecting world of her sin. He will judge rebellion. (laughs) I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It will be brutal and very difficult to even conceptualize. And yet you need to know this is important. It's our context. It's what makes chapter 5 so significant. There will never, ever, ever be a soul who will be able to stand before Jesus in judgment and claim an unjust prosecution. You need to know that. You see, Jesus is worthy to judge man for his sin because as the lamb, he was slain to save man from his sins. It makes him worthy. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.